So when was the last time that you felt totally overwhelmed? When was the last time you felt like you were in way over your head, that you were just completely outmatched and completely uh, inadequate for whatever it is that was confronting you in that moment? We've all had those seasons. For me, the last season would have started exactly uh, one month ago today when I drove Krista to the hospital, St. Catherine's General, so that she could have lung surgery, which ended up resulting in an eight-day hospital stay for her. Um, And then she came home and had a chest tube still inserted into her torso for five more days at home and was really quite incapacitated for most of those 13 days to really do much of anything at all. And, um, and I'm going to tell you, during that period of time, I felt the pressure of trying to be everything that I needed to be for all the people who needed me in that season more heavily than I'd ever felt it before. I mean, on the one hand, I've got my wife in the hospital, right? Who needs me? She needs me. Every day, she needs me to be there and to check in on her and to make sure that she has everything that she needs to survive this excruciatingly boring and excruciatingly painful stay in the hospital that lasted over a week. And so every day, I was at the hospital making sure that she had everything she needed. But at the same time, at home, I had four little princesses running around who needed me. And needed stuff from me. They were still doing the school thing. They needed me to put them on the bus. They needed me to take them off the bus. They needed me to, making, to be making lunches for them. They needed me to be communicating with their teachers. They needed me to be taking them to the Christmas concert. They needed me. They needed to see their mom. So they needed me to be taking them to the hospital so that they could be with their mom and see that she was okay and then to come back home. And they just needed me. And, and not only for school and for mom, but... During December, we have this family tradition of doing an Advent wreath so that every day in December, we do something as a family to anticipate Christmas. And I didn't want to let that tradition fall by the wayside either. And so in between putting them, getting them off to school and home from school and making their lunches, communicating with the teachers, going to Christmas concerts, we were also doing Christmas wreath things, having you know, tea parties, Christmas tea parties, and watching Christmas movies, and going to see the lights in Niagara Falls, and going to Dollarama to buy gifts, you know, for the sisters to buy gifts for each other, and so on. And I had in-laws who needed me, whose daughter was in the hospital, and who wanted to know that their daughter was okay, but my in-laws live in a home, and my father-in-law is not all that mobile in his wheelchair, and so I would drive to the North End, And I'd get my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and load them into the van and drive to the hospital. And we'd go and visit with Krista. But then my father-in-law would get tired in the chair. And so I'd take him back to the North End. And then I'd rush home and catch the bus and meet the girls off the bus, drop the backpacks at home, drive back to the hospital so the girls could see mom. But then I had to race home because somebody, out of the kindness of their heart, was bringing us dinner. And so we had to be home to get the dinner. And then after dinner, we raced off to the Christmas concert. And after the Christmas concert, we had to go to Niagara Falls to go see the Christmas lights. And then we got home by nine o'clock and I put the girls to bed and then started to do dishes and to make lunches for the next day because there was gonna be school again the next day. And it just went on and on and on. And aside from all these people who needed me, there were all of you people who needed me. I still went to work. I still had a job to do. I had sermons to preach and I had meetings to attend. And, 
as the days wore on, I felt myself slowly getting buried under this mountain of responsibility. I emerged out of that period of time, I tell you, with more respect for single parents than I've ever been able to understand or experience in my entire life. People who do this every single day, two jobs, putting themselves through school to give their kids a better life, who don't do it for a week or two weeks, but who do it for life. It's just unbelievable. I emerged from that period of time feeling I am incapable of doing this thing that I have to do right now. I'm just, I was just overwhelmed. Uh, and I knew that I was in over my head, that I was inadequate to be everything that everyone in my life needed me to be right at that moment. And I begin to suspect that right at that moment, I began to feel exactly what the disciples felt in the passage of scripture that we're gonna look at today. See, last week we picked up the story of Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter nine. And we looked at the person of who Jesus was and what Jesus saw when he looked at the world. And we talked about the fact when Jesus looked at the world, what he saw was people. But he didn't just see people, he noticed them. He noticed their story, he noticed their need, he noticed the condition of their spirit and their soul. He noticed that people all around him were being uh, beaten up and knocked down by life. And he didn't just notice them and their stories, he, he opened himself to be vulnerable enough to care, to have compassion, to enter into people's pain, to take their pain into himself and to feel what people feel as they go through the ups and downs of the lives they were living. He wasn't just someone who cared. He was somebody who was willing to do something. Like he was... Um, we said last week that compassion isn't an emotion, it is an, a motivation for action. And Jesus responded to the need that he saw around him by teaching people, by telling people about the healing love of God that was breaking into the world, that God was trying to make everything new so that people could live in a relationship with God again, be loved by God and could love themselves and love each other and love the world. And then Jesus became an agent of the healing love of God in people's lives. He didn't just talk about it. He lived in a way that spoke louder than words. And he healed people's bodies and he healed people's souls and he reconciled people's relationships and he poured forgiveness into their guilt and joy into their sorrow and hope into their despair and light into their darkness. But the passage ended in Matthew 9, in verse 37, what Jesus saying is to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There is a lot of need everywhere you look, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus says, what we need are more workers. What we need are more people who, who don't just look but who see, who don't just see but who notice, who don't just notice but who care, and who don't just care but are willing to do something about the need that they see around them all the time. And so he says to the disciples, pray that God would send more workers into the harvest field. And then you turn the page to Matthew chapter 10, and you discover that the prayer of the disciples for more workers has been answered, just maybe not in the way that they would have assumed. It says 
Starting at 10 verse 1, it says, So Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Go to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse those who have leprosy, who drive out demons. Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him and he says, guess what? God has answered your prayer for more workers. Uh, the bad news is you're the workers. I want you to go. And I want you to go and do exactly what I have been doing. I want you to go and to tell people about the healing love of God that is breaking the world. Tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's exactly the same phrase that Matthew uses to describe the message of Jesus back in Matthew chapter four. You go and tell them what I've been telling them. That God is taking charge of the world again and that his goal is that he wants to fill the world with love and joy and hope and peace that he wants to um, connect with people so that they feel loved by God and are able to love him in return so that they are able to love themselves and be healed in their souls so that they're able to love each other and live in healthy relationships and that they're able to love the world and be agents of hope in the world but I want you to do more than just talk about it I want you to do what I've been doing I want you to be the change that you want to see in the world. And so go and make the love of God tangible and real. Make the healing love of God a real experience in people's lives. Go heal the sick, cleanse the leper, cast out the demons, raise the dead. Every example that Jesus uses is something that he himself has done in the passages we studied in the fall, in Matthew 8 and 9, you now go and tell people the message that I have been telling people and go and do for people, be an agent of God's healing love in exactly the same way that I have been an agent of God's healing love. You are the workers that I'm sending into the world. And here's how I want you to do it. He gives them two pointers on how to start. He says, number one, I want you to start right where you are. Is don't go to the Gentiles, don't leave the country, don't go somewhere else to be my agent of healing love. Stay right where you are. Don't even go to the Samaritans. Uh, for those who don't know, the Samaritans were kind of a half-breed of half-Jew and half-Gentile, and they lived in Israel alongside of the Jews of the time, kind of like the Palestinians and the, and the Israelis today. Uh, and they kind of had the same relationship as the Palestinians and the Israelis do today. They hated each other. Jesus says, don't even go to them. For now, start right where you are. Start with the people who are already around you. Start with the folks who are already gonna listen. Start with those who are gonna be most receptive to the message of God's healing love breaking into their lives. Start right where you are and, and start with what you already have in your hands. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, he says this. He says, freely you have received, now freely give. He says, freely, generously, liberally, God has already given you much. Right, the Bible says, what have you received 
Or what do you have that you have not received from God? And the answer is nothing. Everything we have, we've received from God as a gift. We received it freely. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God gave it to us out of his love. And so Jesus says in exactly the same way, whatever you have received from God, I want you to now turn around and give to other people in order for it to become an agent of God's healing love in their lives. If you've received forgiveness and mercy, spread forgiveness and mercy wherever you go. If you've received healing in your soul or in your body or, or reconciliation, spread that wherever you go. If God has given you resources of time or money or ability or privilege or power, whatever God has given you, use that to be an agent of his healing love wherever you go. Jesus says the world is full of need full of brokenness and pain, full of people who are harassed and helpless, who are being beaten up and knocked down, and we need more people going out to do what, to to tell people the message of Jesus and to do what Jesus did in bringing healing and hope into their lives. And the disciples and us, we're the workers that God is sending into the harvest field to teach what Jesus taught and to do what Jesus did. And if you let that sink in for even just a second, you should be totally freaked out right now. As I'm sure uh, the disciples were when Jesus first called them together and said, look, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna go and be Jesus to the world. They must have been totally freaked out. Wait a minute, let me get this straight, Jesus. You're sending me into the world and you want me to teach people just like you did. You want me to teach people the truth about the love of God as winsomely and powerfully and effectively and authoritatively as you did in a way that touches thousands of lives. Let me get this straight. You want me to send me into the world to be an agent of healing. You want me to bring healing to people's bodies and souls. You want me to cast the forces of evil out of people's lives. You want me to go to a funeral home, not to console the family, but to raise their loved one from the dead. You gotta be kidding me, Jesus, not me. I'm out, I can't do that. That's not who I am. That's not within my ability. That is above my pay grade. You gotta go find somebody else. I mean, how could, how could they and how could we feel any different? In fact, if, if you're hearing me say, I want you to go out and be Jesus to the world and an agent of God's healing love and I want you to go out and change the world and if, and if the internal reaction is, yeah, I could totally do that, something is deeply broken inside of you. You need to like repent and apologize to God for your arrogance. It's how do you not hear that? That Jesus has tapped us on the shoulder and is sending us in the world and not be totally terrified and feel totally inadequate and feel like this is completely above our pay grade. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus says. It's exactly what he said to them. And it's exactly what he's saying to us. And honestly, I feel like probably the reason, Matthew does something really interesting in this passage, right in between the portions that I've read, Matthew calls kind of a timeout and he names all 12 disciples by name. This is the first time they're ever named 
in the gospel according to Matthew. And this is the only place where he ever gives you the full list. And he kind of, in my opinion, I think he chooses to give the names right here for one exact reason. To remind us what kind of idiots Jesus was dealing with when he said, I want you to go and be Jesus to a hurting world. This is what it says in verse two, verse four. He says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These are the 12 guys that Jesus called to himself and said, I want you to go and be Jesus to a hurting world. And lest you feel inadequate, lest you feel like, well, that was fine for them. You know, they were the disciples. That's fine for them, but I couldn't do that. I want us to just take a minute and remember who these guys are. Lest there's anyone in the room feeling like, I'm, I'm too immature a person to be able to use, be used by God like that. Very first name on the list is Peter. All the way through the gospels, bombastic, and brash and impetuous. Peter opens his mouth only for opportunities to stick his foot in it. In fact, if you read Jesus' encounters with Peter, Jesus is more often disciplining and correcting Peter for something stupid that he's said or done than he is affirming Peter for something positive that he's contributed. You think you're too immature. You can't be more so than Peter. Or maybe you think you... You don't have it in it to do something huge for, for Jesus in the world. Next name on the list is Andrew. Andrew doesn't even get mentioned in, the three, in three of the gospels except for in this exact list. And in the one gospel where Andrew does get mentioned, he's never doing anything remarkable. In the three times Andrew makes an appearance, he's always doing exactly the same thing. He's just quietly, behind the scenes, bringing one person to Jesus. Just introducing one person to Jesus. Not remarkable, not spectacular, not grand or grandiose. Just one by one, just bringing people to Jesus. You could do that. Lest you think, well, I've got character issues that I still need to work out before God could really use a person like me. The next name's on the list, James and his brother John. People Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder. Presumably because... uh, these guys were always thundering away at people. My assumption is from the nickname that these guys had some serious anger issues reinforced by one story that gets told in the Gospels about a time when James and John asked Jesus for permission to rain fire from heaven down on uh, on a Samaritan village to scorch the entire village because they wouldn't uh, welcome Jesus into their gates. Like, There is not a person in our community that has anger issues quite like that. Or maybe you're concerned that you're not sure enough about your faith. You still have doubts. You still have questions. One of the names on the list is Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. He was a seeing is believing kind of guy. And he told the other disciples once, he wouldn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead unless he could see it with his own eyes. This is a guy who had questions. Maybe, maybe part of your concern is that you've made mistakes in your past that you think have disqualified you from being used by God. 
The next name after Thomas is Matthew, who wrote the book, and he included the phrase, the tax collector, to remind us what he did for a living. As a tax collector, Matthew was a traitor against his own people, working for the enemy occupiers on their own homeland, lining his pockets by exploiting the poor, getting rich on the backs of humble taxpayers who did not have the money to pay what he was extorting from them. He was a mafia mob boss. And here he is, being sent out to be Jesus to a broken world. Maybe you're concerned about being too uneducated. Four of these guys are fishermen. In fact, later on in the New Testament, what is said about them is that the, the only remarkable thing about them, they were ordinary, uneducated guys, except they had been with Jesus. That was the only remarkable thing about them. Maybe that's the word for some of us. It's just unremarkable. I'm just too ordinary. I'm too unremarkable to be used by God. Do you know that half the names on this list, we don't even know who these guys are. We don't even really know their real names. They are that anonymous. They're just nobodies or anybodies. And these are the guys that Jesus picked and said, I need you to be Jesus to a hurting world. See, because the point is this, it doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who he is. See, Jesus doesn't want your incredible ability. All he wants is your incredible availability. Jesus doesn't need you to do something huge to change the world. He just needs you to do something small to be an agent of God's healing love in the world. That's all he needs. That's all it takes. And you know that it's true. Because every single person that can hear my voice has had somebody, a very unremarkable somebody, do something, invest in you in a way that absolutely changed your life. You've had somebody do something for you that has changed the entire trajectory of your life. In fact, take a minute, just a couple seconds, and turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor one person who has changed your life by the investment they made in you. Go ahead, turn and talk to your neighbor. I'll call you back in a couple seconds. So, so who is the person that you said to your neighbor has totally changed your life? Probably not some superhero, some celebrity Christian, some you know, nationally, internationally known figure. Probably most of you said you know, people like my parents who loved me. My friend who listened to me at exactly the moment I needed them to. A mentor who spoke one word of such profound wisdom in my life that it changed the, the total trajectory of my life. A teacher who believed in me. A coach who took a chance on me. A boss who took a second chance on me. Someone I don't even know who prayed with me at the front of a service once. Someone who had the courage to call me out on some character issues that I was living with at the time. Every one of us has somebody who has played that kind of role in their life, not because they were some kind of superhuman, super heroic, super spiritual person who did something super huge for the kingdom of God, but because they were an ordinary person, just a regular guy or girl, broken, flawed, immature, imperfect, screwed up, selfish, whatever. Just a regular person who did something small in a small way 
became an agent of the healing love of God in your life. And now, because of them, you know Jesus in a way that you never would have otherwise. Or you experienced healing in your soul and you love yourself in a way that you never could have otherwise. Or you've learned to have healthy relationships and love other people in ways you could have never otherwise. Or you've learned to love the world outside of our doorstep in a way that allows you to be healing and hope for other people in a way that you never could have otherwise. You've experienced that person in your life and now Jesus is asking you to go and to be Jesus to a hurting world, not by being a superhero doing something super huge, but by being a regular person doing something small in the name of Jesus that's gonna be the moment of God's healing love breaking into somebody's life. You know how Matthew 10 ends? It says that anyone that does something as small as give a cup of cold water to a little kid out of the love of Christ is gonna be rewarded in heaven. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. See, you don't have to be adequate in order to go out and to do what Jesus is inviting us to do, to tell people about the healing love of God and to be an agent of that healing love in people's lives. You don't have to be adequate. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be skilled. You don't have to have ability because it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with him. The passage starts in Matthew 10 verse one by saying Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus gave them authority. The word means the right and the ability and the power to act in such a way that you can change somebody's reality. Jesus invests us with the power and the authority to make things different in somebody's life. But it's his power, it's his authority. It has nothing to do with you. He invests us with his power and authority and then he sends us out. The word, they're called apostles in this text. And the word means the ones who are sent out as agents on behalf of the sender to accomplish the sender's purpose in the world on their power and authority. That's what Jesus has sent us out to be, uh, uh, ambassadors. People who go to accomplish the purpose of the sender with their power and authority. You ever wonder why the American ambassador has more power, more influence, and more clout than the ambassador of Estonia? It has nothing to do with the ambassador, with how skilled or talented or able or handsome or beautiful or whatever they are. It has nothing to do with their ability. It has everything to do with the power and authority of the person who sent them. And this is the invitation of Jesus, that we would go as regular people to do something small, to tell people about the healing love of God and to be an agent of the healing love of God in people's lives by allowing the power and authority of Jesus to flow through us into them. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do and to be. I'll tell you a story. When I was six or seven years old, I was a part of this church and I was invited one Sunday to come to the front and to recite the 23rd Psalm for the church during the worship service. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And on and on it goes. 
I was invited to the front that Sunday and we had a big wooden pulpit back then so somebody put a chair behind the pulpit and I climbed up on the chair and I grabbed the pulpit and I leaned into the microphone in my little squeaky six-year-old voice. I recited the 23rd Psalm on a Sunday morning for our church. After the service, somebody came up to me and to this day, I don't know who it was. I don't remember. I was just little. But I remember that someone came up to me And they knelt down in front of me and they grabbed my shoulders and they looked me in the eye and they said, I saw you standing behind the pulpit, grabbing it like Pastor John does every Sunday. And I suddenly wondered what what a wonderful thing it would be if God were to let you preach in our church one day. I don't even know who that person was. They're completely anonymous to me. But that single word of encouragement became a seed that was planted in in my soul that altered the entire trajectory of my life and became the launching off point of me becoming who I am today and doing what I now do as my life's work. That's what Jesus is inviting us to be. Somebody not a superhuman, not doing something super huge, a regular person willing to go out to look, to not just look but to see, to not just see but to notice, to not just notice but to care, to not just care, but be willing to do something small, to communicate the healing love of God into somebody's life and to be an agent of that healing love of God as his power and authority flows through us into them. To go out as someone ordinary and to allow God to do something extra through us. Just by being the kind of people who say, I refuse to do nothing.